It's time for an episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this time out, we're going to talk to a guy who was on one of our first 10 episodes. Our friend David Wissickenden has had a hell of a year. His year has been full of live music, documentaries, and so much more, including traveling around parts of the world. Here's our chat with David seated at his kit at his house on the podcast. Well, you're getting back into the swing of life, of things like that. Yeah. It has been a hell of a year for you and everybody in your little universe, man. Your boys and uh, the Hooters and everybody that you work with and around have had quite a year. Yeah. And... I really want to take some time today and and talk about that, the year that you guys had. And then also I want to take some time and talk about the new documentary, It's All About You. And I didn't realize that when it first came out or I heard you were in it, I thought it was like a a cool thing about drummers who were cool and like you, you know, Davey. Heart of the beat. Yeah. And then I found out that it was all about you as the heart of the beat. And so, I don't know about you, Marcus, but I've been waiting since then to, to see the thing, and it's just amazing to get a chance to watch oh, it all like unfold, you. you know? Yeah, yeah. It's 45 minutes of me. <laughs> I got a nice note from Ray. He thought it was he liked it. So that means a lot, you know, because when they first approached me about it, I definitely was a little bit like, mm, I'm not sure, but then... You know, look, I've chosen the profession much like you guys. That's the showbiz. You know, what better to promote what you do than a, a radio or film or something like that? And I, because I've had some ups and downs with my personal life, and they asked me if I would be open to talk about that. And I thought, well, if can help one person out there see someone that kind of overcame a heroin addiction. I was into it. You know, I've seen it a few times. I saw it at the very first showing, which I never saw before. I went at the showing at the uh, First Glass Film Festival, and I was a bit unnerved because I was thinking, maybe I should have watched it before so I had an idea <laughs> what was coming. And <laughs> But I didn't. And now, I, you know, I've seen it a handful of times, and now I like it. I like it. It sounds like it was kind of awkward in that way that, like, for us radio people, hearing our own voice. Oh, my God, <laughs> we hear our own voice, and you're looking yeah. at yourself talking yeah. about you mm-hmm. in yeah. video format. So I'm sure it was a little bit awkward like that. But what surprised me the most was your little brief snippet about your heroin addiction. Yeah, yeah. As that's something that I had never known about you. But yeah. the thing that really, I think, stood out to me about that little segment is that you really have good, true, real friends in oh. the band. And yeah, yeah, it really came through, yeah. especially in that part of the story. Yeah, we're more like brothers like brothers act from my experience of knowing i only have have two sisters but my friends that have brothers my relationship with all the guys are like brothers i mean like i've I've played with rob and eric for over 44 years and we kind of know each other really really well and john is close to that long john lilly and then fran smith who i've known probably as long as Rob and Eric, because I would go see him play. And I was a big fan. And then Tommy, but we were all really tight, but more like brothers than friends, you know, because brothers can have like disputes. <laughs> it's that, you know, like our friends can too. But we've had like, because you're on a bus. And I think we're at the point where, you know, if we don't like something about what's going on with someone, we'll say it, you know. And I'm glad that they were like that with me, because if uh, if they hadn't, been like that i might not have survived that addiction you know i was like way deep in it at the time no fentanyl wasn't around back then but had it been i would have been dead a long time ago because i was using a lot you know i mean and i was using way before the band the, i was using before the band the hooters got together you know i i think a good three years i was in it deep and then i kind of got deeper when i started making some consistent money you know with them so. in the movie you bring up the date june 26 1986 and i knew you by then yeah i had been going to see you guys since 8081 yeah and never had an inkling that you were dealing with this or that this was a thing 
And oh, yeah. sometimes, though, I got to tell you, I was looking at a lot of footage of you this week. It's all yeah. about you this week, David. Yeah, you're yeah. Balance history too. Yeah. yeah. And I saw pictures, and I could see a couple pictures where, yeah, maybe that was wearing yeah. on you. And oh, yeah. I can't tell you, having had, I guess our friendship's had a few phases itself. I can't tell you how grateful I am to those guys that they all stepped in that day and instead of taking you. Where did you think you were going? I thought I was rehearsing. Yeah. I thought I was going to rehearse with them that day. I thought I sat there and said, oh, we're not going to rehearse? No, we're talking to you. You were like <laughs> Joe Pesci and Goodfellas, except for they were intervention. You, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they sat down and they was like, you know, you got a choice to make. And fortunately, you know, I was ready, though. I was done. I was really, really done. And look at how much is happening in your life good things that have happened in oh. your life all these decades now not yeah. to mention the fair maiden dallin yeah. which we should mention because she's yeah. part of the story in the documentary big time as well you know, yeah she's part of the story yeah i was gonna say my philly friends people that like you know and there were a lot of people that didn't know and there were a lot of people that felt a little bit like they were happy i was getting better i was going to meetings and i was doing what i was doing but there were some friends of mine that kind of felt a little bit deceived, <laughs> you know, like, what's up, man? Was that not the real Dave? It was. See, here are things about that kind of drug. At that point, like in the 80s, I was using to just maintain. Like, I rarely got, like, I mean, I would get a buzz, but it wasn't like I would just use drugs intravenously. That's why I used it, to just get to work. Then I'd come home, and then I had to use to get sleep. So it was like an everyday thing. It was just about maintaining the condition. If it was a new, because if anybody knows anything about opiate addiction and heroin, you know, when you start getting sick, your body reacts in a really non-pretty way. So, I mean, I would start flinching. And I remember because I read about Miles Davis kicking in his dad's shed in the back, which was all romantic and cool looking to me. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll go back and lock myself off and like, you know, do that. But I wasn't very good at it. I couldn't stand it. And I needed to be put away to deal with that treatment. You know, it wasn't a pretty picture. Well, kudos to you for making a story that some of us know part of this or allowing it to be part of this because yeah. it's part of the heart of the beat, which is the documentary all about our friend David. And we do want to talk about some other stuff, but I, now that we're into the documentary, I got to tell you, I learned some. I always learn stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. First off, I finally, after knowing him almost as long as I know <laughs> you, I learned Turk's real first name. <laughs> and it's Don. Don I Shell. Know, I didn't know that. The Turk, yeah. Isn't he marvelous in it? He's marvelous he in it. He's so great in it. Because he doesn't talk like that, especially to me. I mean, he's business, man. That cat is business, except, you know, that and the Phillies and others and his lovely wife, Sharon. You know, that's what he's very serious about, music and doing his job. So to hear those kind of compliments coming from him was just like, you know, I nearly was moved to tears when I heard him say that, you know, because he knows me probably better than anybody because he mixes my dramas on the stage and knows what I like to hear. And, he, you know, he could feel me as I could feel him. So it was big. Now, Marcus and I have kind of gotten into this whole rabbit hole of uh, Scottalite's love through the uh, years now. Almost five years, Dave, that we've been doing the podcast. Love it. It's and cool. imagine me learning this in my friend's documentary yeah. that that man in the streets a song that really drew a lot of us to you guys in the early days both from the live broadcasts and from the mmr airplay even before it was on a record right that that's a scott of lights record and i yeah. never knew that and yeah. i listened to the whole thing the other day after i watched the documentary and you told me about that in there and i was like oh i gotta go listen yeah sweet way to share that and bring it all full circle there you know yeah great record too because that kind of feel that kind of thing that they were throwing down was such fun music to play drums to so i wasn't kidding i took to it like a fish to water i loved it i mean been in street still you know some of those recordings those early recordings are really great during the documentary it was really cool watching you do the uh drum beats for both ska and yeah. reggae yeah then listening to it underneath all you zombies yeah yeah is pretty incredible because yeah. It just really adds that little extra spice to the vibe. But you yeah. also said that reggae and ska are challenging to play. How are they challenging to play? Well, because like the reggae stuff, it's an intense form of music, but you have to kind of lay back on it a little bit and play in holes. You know, like the, I was talking about that music of playing around, playing on that two or four, where we, a, a rock beat would be... 
But the reggae beat is falling on the two and four, a lot of it. And then the cross sticking stuff that when I was hitting the rim, system that like really colors it. So, you know, it's like, I don't find it challenging. I know I've had some friends of mine who told me that they, drummer friends of mine, that it's not really in their wheelhouse. For me, it was totally in my wheelhouse. I enjoy it to this day. Now, when you were a kid, you were exposed to music and yeah. you, you were playing trumpet. Is that yeah. when you met Buddy Rich? Were you already playing music? I was playing music when I met Buddy Rich. I was, I was 11. Oh. So I met him. My dad took me to a show and Buddy pulled up in his bus with his band and uh, my dad, you know, he grabbed me, grabbed Buddy, I don't know, as much as you could grab Buddy, and said, uh, oh, would you take a picture of my son? And I remember my father couldn't get the camera to work, and Buddy was very impatient, and he used a few choice words and saying, like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and, word. And, uh, and I remember looking, I'm going, man, it's Buddy Rich, but he's going to get mad at my dad and start, like, <laughs> I was kind of embarrassed a little bit by what was happening, but it was super cool. But that's because you were a kid, and those moments, you know, and when you're a kid, seem all the more like, yeah. what? you know. Speak, so. Speaking of kids, hey, yeah. it's Luca joining us on the hey, podcast that's with cool. Danny Marcus here. Wow. Hey, Luca, how you doing, buddy? Can you hear? Yeah. Wow. You look great, buddy. How are you? How old are you? Seven. Wow, man. You're big for seven. You look great, man. You having fun? You getting ready for the holidays? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice, man. It's nighttime to chill out. You know, it's great. Hang out with the family. Yeah. What do you well, do for the holidays? What am I going to do? Yeah. I'm going to probably just hang around with my wife and just visit some friends and hang out here and just relax a little bit because I think it's going to be a busy year. So I'm going to try not to work, but I'll play some music. I don't know if you see these drums I have here. I might mess around with some drum stuff and uh, just relax a little bit. Watch some movies. I want to see some movies. I like. Do you like watching movies? Yeah. I love movies. I love watching movies. So I watch some movies and I'm, I'm a big fan of Netflix and Prime. And so there's a bunch of things I've been dying to watch. Well, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. So it's cool. It's good. It's good to meet you, buddy. I saw you guys at the Keswick. Wait a minute. You were there, right? Oh, my God. Hey, Friday night. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. And I didn't get a chance to say hi because you guys, it was late. It's a late night. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. do you like the solo? Mm -hmm. Yeah, did the Rocky theme. I get up and I do this, you know, it's cool. That's cool. <laughs> well, man, it's a pleasure meeting you. Next time if we do a show, you got to get your dad, bring it backstage. I'll put you up on the drums. You can check him out. Cool. Oh, cool. Thank you. You're welcome. What a great kid. Uh, Good to see you, Luca. Say All goodbye. right, Luca, Luca, Luca came. Yeah. I, for, I forgot about that. Luca came today. About 11 o'clock, it got to be a little late. A little 11 o'clock gets to be a little late for me, too, Marcus. Yeah. Did I know? <laughs> me too. Yeah, we were talking about that. My wife and I are like, man, we should start these shows at like 7. No way. I mean, listen, <laughs> uh, ex exactly. How about, how about like they do in Tokyo, 6? That's what they do in Japan when we went toward their nations. But we used to go over there. The shows used to start at 6 p.m. And I used to go, man, this is awesome. Because you'd be done. You'd be leaving at 8 o'clock. You know, it was great. You know, that's a decent hour, you know. Now, there's the older you get, you know, you get later. I'm, I, I'm touring Europe this summer and I'm playing a lot of festivals. And the one thing about the festivals is you play earlier in the day. Sometimes, you know, unless you're closing the show. And right. so we're doing more of that these days. But I always like going on a little bit earlier. So it was done. One of the things I learned is that you and I both discovered Eric and Rob the same way through their band, Baby Grant. Wow. Well, they were on Arista. Yeah, I think it was uh, Q102 was playing them. Yeah. Uh, not just Shockey, but all those guys. Yeah, yeah. And Helen, too. And uh, they kind of caught on a little bit with their version of Walk Away Renee. Remember that? Sure, I do. I do remember. I I, I uh, was a big fan of that band. I'm a big fan of Rick Morata. So whatever Morata was playing on, I liked. I think because of their bass player that was joining the band, I think at the time when they were recording that first record with Walk Away Renee on it, Carmine Rojas, who uh, him and I, him and I were friends, who later became David Bowie's bass player for a long time, and Rod Stewart's bass player. And Michael Kamen did all the arrangements, right? The strings yeah, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I became a fan of Baby Grands because of Carmine, and I got to know that band a little bit, like the music. Didn't know them, but then I saw them. At, I don't. Did you go to the Bijou show? Did you see them when they played the Bijou with Felix Cavallari? No, that's where I first saw you guys oh. when, you, when you first came back from the shore in like 81. Oh. <laughs> Was there a bomb scare? 
No, but you did play Bomb Scare that night. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because the time before there was a Bomb Scare, and then we wrote the song Bomb Scare. There was all these new songs called Hanging on a Heartbeat. And, yeah. And, uh, all these other things. It, Pete it Rose. Out, yeah, Pete Rose was brand new. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it came out on the album this year. But that was a good, getting back to Baby Grant, that was a great band. They were more like a progressive, I don't know, there's a thing you could call progressive pop, but they had like this melodic element to the band that like you know always had some sort of chorus like give it time or walk away renee something like that going on it was like a, a refrain a hook thing from it but then there was always some song that's played in five or seven nine <laughs> you know some wacky wacky progressive feel that they had to it another little bit you talked about and in our previous conversations you've mentioned a little bit about your experience of playing the wall when it went down yeah and you've had a ton of success in europe over the years i have three childhood friends who were backpacking in europe at the time the wall went down and actually jumped trains to go see everybody play at the berlin wall oh wow and they saw you What was it like for you to see the crowd of a lot of young people and this big change happening and to be a part of something so important worldwide? Yeah. I mean, that show was just, you know, that talk about being at the right place at the right time. Our relationship with Roger Waters was like really instrumental in us doing that show. We were only supposed to, which was huge open the show or play in the open segment of the show which if people don't know they had if you see the film you see the wall but before that performance you had carlos alomar had a band i forget the name of the band but they played the band without robbie robertson robertson they played and the hooters played i think that was it there were like three bands that opened the show and well the scorpions they they did the intro bit with us so we played on that massive stage in front of about i think they estimated when we were on stage about 250,000 people were in the audience and then it grew to about a half a million i think at the end of the day they said there's 750,000 people at the show at the plus tower plots it was remarkable just a sea of human beings from the stage back as far as your eyes could see i climbed the scaffolds with my friend Rick Defonso was playing with Roger Waters at the time he was on with us a while back and talked about this and he didn't mention climbing scaffolds go on oh yeah he climbed the scaffolds him and snowy i went up with rick rick said come on with me so i followed him in the back and i went all the way up the scaffolds which was unbelievable which i'm not even sure if they had something like wrapped around you know that if the wind blew they would fall because they were way up there man oh wait a minute he did tell us about this because he said he was scared shitless yeah something would happen because there was no room for error you know no room for error you know i knew because i climbed behind him i went up there and so i seen him and snowy do their bit for that film it was a remarkable thing to be a part of it it was a remarkable thing to see that this sea of humanity man from the beginning of the stage to the back like i said you know you couldn't even tell where the end was it just kept on going it was an incredible thing now we did it for two days because the first day that we filmed it roger wanted to record the show as a backup just in case something happened during the satellite performance so they could switch it off and you know there'll be a short delay but the show would go on it was really smart and so we did Mother with Sinead O'Connor and the guys in the band. And we were up there. I'm doing the percussion bit with them. And Sinead O'Connor got, didn't Rick mention anything about Sinead O'Connor? Rest in peace. She didn't want to rehearse the song or do it again. And she had to be coaxed to back on the stage to do it the day before. And she was having one of her... I should I say moments. I mean, like we know a lot more about mental illness now these days, but she was very uh, down that day. And the next day she came back, she was up, but we had the coaxer back on stage, but it was incredible working with him. He was just so chill through the whole thing, you know, amazing. One of the things that comes across really well is the way that rock stars of the universe were drawn to you guys when the Hooters first started breaking out. Larry Maggot's appearance in the film kind of yeah. sets the stage for that. He tells yeah. his side of things. And then yeah. you start talking about meeting Jagger and how yeah. the guy really liked you guys at a Who yeah. concert. Wow. We talked wow. about that before, like for yeah. a kid from Philly or yeah. Bucks County as we yeah. are, right? Yeah. It was yeah. like, you're kidding me, man, you know? From, from Levittown, baby. Yeah, I see. I didn't realize I got my Levittown shirt. Mill Creek Falls. Yes, yeah, so Mick coming backstage was the most surreal moment because that's the first time I ever met. Well, that day, I, you know, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, John Entwistle, and Kenny Jones. And so, you know, we didn't sound check. We came in. You know, we played our, we played, and then Santana played, and then The Clash 
and the who we had another gig that night we were playing in richmond virginia so we left as the who were walking on the stage but that morning that morning I think I just happened to be standing out there at JFK before, you know, the there was like those trailers that were back there with that, where it was looked like a, a wooden fence around it. And I saw Larry come back there and standing next to him was Mick Jagger. And it was like, whoa, you know, like up close and personal. Yeah. Then he comes back and he comes, he comes to our dressing room. And he, he wanted to say, Larry's like, I want to introduce you to the Hooters. <laughs> it was like, wow. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you see, there's a photo of me. I don't think if, I don't know if it's in there in that one, in that documentary, but it floats around Facebook once in a while where I'm holding a beer at 930 in the morning, standing next to Mick. It was a surreal moment with Jagger. But you also had a moment with Paul McCartney and a moment with George Harrison. Yeah, yeah. In your documentary, you stated seeing the Beatles completely changed your world. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I saw them and I wanted to be I wanted to be in the Stones or I wanted to be in the Beatles. The first band I ever saw, of course, was the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. And so I got the bug. And then, of course, meeting Paul. Paul, like, and he's so normal. You know, he's a rock star, but he doesn't act like one. You know, he, he saw Eric and I and he said hello and he came walking over and he said, uh, I really like your single satellite. And then, you know, we go backstage after all this stuff. We chat with him. We're like, can you believe this? You know, and he's talking about it. the Hooters song Satellite. And then our dressing room is right next to his. So we are hanging out with him and Linda all day, all day, all day. Linda sent me a. I don't have it anymore. I don't know where it is, but it's unfortunate, but it, it got lost in one of my moves. She sent me a calendar. But what I do have from that day, which I had it with me, I have a jean jacket and in it is Paul McCartney wrote, Paul McCartney was E-R-E -E -E, and he does this line. <laughs> and next to it, it says Linda McCartney with a line through it, with a heart. It's awesome. I have a jean jacket, you know, I always pray that it won't wear off. So it's pretty remarkable. To well, have. you've had some pretty remarkable experiences. You know, yeah. Marcus and I sometimes, you know, talk about our stories, things we've done. Yeah. And you've rubbed elbows with all of them. I guess I got to ask, you know, did you ever meet Ringo or Charlie? Two drummers no. that I know you look at. No, yeah, of course. I love Ringo. and I, I am still working on Ringo. I'd like to meet Ringo because I got a friend of mine that is very good friends with Ringo. Billy Amendola, he does uh, the drum channel and he's good friends with Ringo. And when I was on the show, we talked about Ringo and Eric has met R Ringo and I haven't. And Charlie, I guess it's the one that my buddy, you know, and I think I would react the same way as my buddy Mickey Carey, who played with Brian Adams. They were, Brian Adams was opening for the Stones somewhere and Charlie walked in his dressing room and Mickey, who has no problem talking to people, said, I, I, I couldn't even talk to him. I was like, Charlie, I, I was like looking for things to be. He was just in such awe of being in the same room with them. But I never met them. No, no. You know, I've met a lot of my favorite drummers in the world, but I've never met those two guys. Yeah. Their buddy, Jim Keltner, I've spent some time with, and I adore Keltner. So kind of felt like I was getting close to them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And, and the whole Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Uh, we've yeah. been deep into that, reading a new book about Jim Gordon and, and his oh. life and times, oh. including a lot of sadness. Talk about focus oh. on uh, mental health. Listen, man, I play it for my students. Online, you can hear these isolated drum tracks. And if you pull up Layla, it's kind of messy because you hear a lot of the stuff. The Jim Gordon Layla track is insane. You hear how he's tap dancing his way through the song, moving in his fills. They're just beautiful. It's the music is flowing. His drumming is just a piece of art. It's incredible. It's like a wave. The guy was just so brilliant. He was like that on everything he played on. He used the drummer on You're So Vain. The Carly Simon track, which is such an amazing drum track. You know, here when the drums come in the big build, how you know, majestic it is. I mean, Jim really took, played those drums like, you know, this is like, it was this orchestrated piece of solid music, man. Jim Gordon was a genius. He was and yeah. haunted genius. And it seems yeah. that drums were what kept all those voices at bay for him for a long time i'm still in the middle of it so i don't want to get too far into it yeah. we're you talking to joel selvin who wrote this book that's wow. coming out in 24 too wow. we're talking with david was sickening from the hooters and so much more you had uh other than mccartney and all uh and harrison and all that you've had some other wonderful run-ins at places like live aid where you yeah. started the american day also i was there all day too it was a banner day for our team right right 
And then uh, you mentioned Amnesty International in the documentary, Heart of the Beat, that you saw a bunch of people there. You mentioned Yoko. I saw her and Sean walking under the stadium. And yeah. that was a crazy day for us and the people from WNEW. We teamed up in the uh, in the press box, and Jackson Brown was there with Daryl Hannah. Ended up smoking cigars with Elliot Gould. It was one of those crazy days that you can have if you're in the right place at the right time. Totally. And so it's funny you mentioned that. It brought all that back to me. You know, interesting about that gig too i think that was like live aid was uh, july 13th 1985 correct and then uh, i don't know how many months later but amnesty international came around and we are part of that but within that time we were playing live aid and we played all you zombies we played and we danced and people in philly seemed to know it but by the time we got to amnesty it was like people knew our music it was like that whole stadium. Uh, not that it wasn't rocking in Philly. It was rocking in Philly. But we could tell that they knew us. Like they knew us from from being on MTV. That we came on stage. It was right away. They could feel it coming. You know, like ready to dig in. So that was an incredible show. I love watching that when I go to YouTube. I like pulling that one up. One, two, three. When you opened up Live Aid, do you remember what musicians and bands were watching you guys play from that little side stage area that musicians watch you from? Man, I only remember Jack Nicholson shaking my hand as I walked on the stage and he said, go get him, kid. Apparently he said that to everybody in the band I shook hands with because I hear Andy King said that he said the same thing to him. But I said, he said, go get him, kid. And I shook and it was cool. But I remember seeing Chubby Chase there. But Nicholson was just like, it was just so weird talking to the guy. Yeah, he was great. That was around the time of Amore, which I always say is the first album and the school spirit contest and i want to thank you guys for including that because i was part of the team that was counting the cards at first and uh how did you, know, you do that we well like you kind of say in the documentary the uh, way we're going to need a bigger boat so we actually went and got a firm an accounting firm yeah, I remember that, that. That all the cards that we picked up, we would go out and do pickups. People would bring us boxes and boxes of cards to locations on Saturdays, all through this whole thing. Wow. And, of course, they were delivering them to us, and we would put them all in the van and run them down to the storage place, and they'd weigh them all. And it was just one of the most insane, crazy things. My favorite is the picture of you guys sitting in the boxes right. with all the postcards all piled right. around you. Yeah. And I'll always yeah. remember that day at Medford High School. Yeah. What it was like. The kids went crazy, Marcus. They did. It yeah. was that kind of day. hot and steamy in the yeah, uh, auditorium yeah. and yeah. out of control. We did a whole tour of high schools because of that. I think we were playing every weekend, two high schools a, a weekend for what seemed like six months. Like I didn't realize there were that many high schools in the area, but we played everywhere. Archbishop Dish, Central this, Central that, <laughs> East this, East that, you know, it was amazing. It was great. It was really great. It was great to be part of that, and it brought it all back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a lot, a lot of gratitude to WMMR for putting that thing together. That was that was a big deal. That was a really big deal. Yeah. What a great tour idea, and what a great way to build up a young audience of fans for yeah. life. That is yeah. so smart. Well, in the documentary, there's a, a girl, a husband and wife that are talking about seeing us at a high school. They come over. They, we were playing at Ardmore Music Hall. 
Mm-hmm. And afterwards, you know, they approached me and said, we haven't seen you since then. And it's pretty wild when you run into people that were have been fans of what you've been doing since you were like, I was like about 20, 21, something like that, you know, in my early 20s when that was happening. And now yeah. coming up on 70 in a couple of years, you know, so it's crazy, crazy how, you know, people could be that loyal, which is fantastic. We're talking about Heart of the Beat and you got to go see it, find it online. I don't know what you yeah. guys are doing as far as releasing it. Well, interesting enough, there's been some talk about that. They're, they're working on some distribution of it. And at some point it'll be at some sort of streaming network or something like that from but because you know obviously it's you know someone has to want it enough to do it and it appears that somebody does so count on good. us it, to it, get it, it out there from our thank end you. of things for you 100 you. Thank you. so thank you thank before you. we go to the break and i want to come back and talk about the year that was yeah 2023 for you right on right on but i saw your post about the passing of one of the greats. And I I know you encountered him during your time working at mp3.com talking about Jim Ladd, the last DJ signing off from this little blue marble, the week we record this episode for future release. And uh, I only met him a couple times and it's one of those things where everybody who listened like any DJ or radio personality, I guess everybody has their own view and relationship with that person from the audience perspective. So, and I just thought it was really uh, neat to, to, to see that and to find out yeah. that he had that amazing house up in the, uh, in the it was canyon. cool. I still remember that one. Like it was yesterday. Yeah. It was one of those really surreal moments where you get, I think I did uh what's the guy's name. I, we did rock line a bunch of times. We would fly out wherever we were and we would do an interview somewhere at the Westwood one studios. With Jim, Jim Ladd, who we're talking about. Jim Ladd had this incredible voice like you radio people do. You all have a style voice, but it all seems it has to be has to be good. You don't do that business, but you do if you guys don't have good voices to do it. Now Jim had a unique style and he was just so comfortable in front of the mic and so comfortable to ask questions. Like I found him to be such a, a really nice man. You know, like I remember Rob and I got on this little, we went to Laurel Canyon, which all these like back in the day, I remember like Crosby, Stills and Nash, the doors. I mean, I stayed at, oh my God, I'm having a brain freeze, but the producer, uh, what's his name? The guy that produced the doors. Paul um, Rothschild? I stayed at Paul's house because I knew his son through a guitar player that I play with. So that whole place was like something that was out of Alice in Wonderland. The whole place looked just cosmic, really, really amazing. Laurel Canyon going up the hill and then back down the hill. But Jim's place, as I recall, was going up the hill. And I remember it was built on a hill and we had to get on this little train. It was like a little railway car that took us up. I remember seeing something like back in the old cold day when people would move coal up the mountains in coal mining country. But this would, you'd load people into it and they carry you up right. to his house. And stuff. So yeah, and Rob and I, yeah, groceries, whatever you're carrying up. So Rob and I, we took this visit up, we got in this little train ad thing. He had rode it up to his house and we spent an evening recording an interview with him. It was, it was awesome. Wow. You know, and then he became like, you know, with Roger, he was good friends with Roger Waters. So he did that tour, the chaos, the. Um, I saw that tour. It was yeah. great. And, and Jim had a, a setup with the radio chaos. He had the DJ set up on stage, which is so think about like how Roger was thinking was so ahead of the times. Now it's not uncommon to see a DJ on stage spinning and doing his thing with records. But back then, you know, Jim was like one of the first to do it with Roger, Roger Waters. Thanks for posting that this week. It really made my day. Really appreciate it, man. I didn't know him. I'm an acquaintance of his, and I was got to do the interview, but he touched me. So I felt, you know what? I wanted to write something about him because he was so likable. And what a contribution to the arts that he had. Incredible. His book, Radio Waves, is outstanding. Oh, I read it. I got to check it out. David, Marcus, and Ray together here on The Imbalanced History. We're going to pause and come back and talk about the year that was 2023 for you and your mates, Davey, here on the podcast. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We've been talking about it, man, but it's here. The 10th anniversary of Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor and our friends right there in the heart of Hamper are pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and even I can do the math on that. 10 years, guys. Paul and Paul and Chris and Jeff, the brewer of all the wonderful fresh brews they make right there on the premises. Matt and the gang from uh, Salty Vets Barbecue have been part of things. The Crooked Eye Band. Can I hear it for the Crooked Eye Band, ladies and gentlemen? You can't see me. I'm clicking my lighter. Don't light up the hawk. Don't I? <laughs> He's got a hawk in the background on his branch there. Don't start a fire there in the studio. No way. Hey, listen, man, get out the Crooked Eye anytime. Every night there's stuff going on. Follow him on Facebook and all that. But I just got to offer all kinds of big hugs all around. And we need to get in there and just uh, spend some time with the gang to celebrate 10 years of making it great. Thank you, Crooked Eye, for your support. And thank you for the wonderful beers that you have been producing for the past decade. Raising a pint to the next 10 with Crooked Eye and the Imbalance History Together. Ray and Marcus with our pal David was sickening on the imbalance history of rock and roll. And I was thinking about this about a year ago. All you guys in the Hooters were just kind of doing your thing. And nobody was really paying close attention. And nobody had noticed that you'd started doing production for a new album, which turned out to be Rocking and Swing. Just an amazing album that you kept under wraps under our very noses the entire time. Yeah. And... Then the fates intervene, and you guys get the opening slot on the Rick Springfield tour, which is going to yeah. put you in front of a lot of American faces, yeah. which hasn't happened regularly in a few years. 30. 30. I didn't want to say 30, but you just 30. did. Yeah. Yeah, 30. I mean, we've done dates in the States, but we haven't yeah. done a tour. Not like I mean, this we, one. We, nah, not like we're in, you know, a bus and your band's in the bus. In this case, because there was only so much in the budget, we had a big bus. <laughs> Crew and band and management were traveling with us. And the tour with Rick, who is an absolute rock star. He's, he really is a great super guy. And Rick was terrific. Paul Young was out on the tour with us. Tommy Two-Tone was out with us. John Waite was with us. At times, we didn't all play at the shows, but we, Hooters were pretty consistent from the tour, from the day that tour started to the end. And then, oh yeah, and the Tubes actually did a, a show with us as well. But it, it was incredible because I got some friends in Rick's band. His drummer is a very good friend of mine, Jorge Prelicius. He's a fantastic drummer. So we had a great time. It was a great tour for us. We did 23 dates in Europe, then came home at a break. I think we did another 26 in the U.S. I think 23 of them with Rick. So all across wow. the United States, into the Pacific Northwest, into the West Coast. So it was awesome. Truly awesome. Before you get there, you quietly go around. You guys were pretty quiet about making the album. Yeah. Tell us how that started to come together and when you realized that the forces of nature might align with this tour and, yeah. and doing more than your normal European yeah. touring. Yeah, like a lot of times uh, what happens is Eric and Rob will get together and they'll start going through old recordings and pieces of music that we had over the years like in the archives they start digging through stuff and this was early on after we finished the tour the 2022 tour and we finished that tour and they started messing around i think they found the very first thing i think they found was i think it was pete rose and they 
realize how special it was. It was like recorded. It needed some updating. So they pulled it back out. They obviously digitized it. And then we started working on it. We ended up cutting that track, I think, on that original, on the version of Pete Rose. There are some original pieces of that song, that recording, that are in that track. Oh, I didn't so know that. I, Yeah, and I came back and I put the drums down on it. I re-recorded the drums. And then, you know, we kind of gave it, We, you know, we Rob and Eric called it, you know, we took a mulligan with Engine 999 and Brother Don't You Walk Away because we it made a, a conscious choice to, it's like a ska reggae record, which that was the roots of the band, how we started. So we wanted to make the whole package a record like that. So, you know, there were some new things things that were written and they came across why won't you call me back which was like a really killer hook and we liked it as a song so you know that was something new and then we added some old stuff and next thing you know we had a uh, a nine song project on our hands and it was a lot of fun to record a lot of fun to promote and we're still promoting it so it's cool we're not tired of it yet I just saw our dates for Europe next summer, so I don't know. We got some U.S. stuff that I'm sure is going to come up, but we're going to go out and tour with that again this year. How cool was it to be riding in the car with Dallin and have that come on? The flurry at the beginning, that killer drum beat, uh, yeah. why don't you call me back? In your hometown again, you know. I feel like I know you, though we've never met. It never gets old. You know, you hear yourself on the radio and you do something new for a band like the Hooters. I've been around for a long time. It was really cool to be able to do that. I mean, look, I would never put us on the level of the Beatles, but when the Beatles did that new song, they found that vocal thing that John did from his house and they did that. You know, like just to hear them together again was exciting for me. So in a lot of ways went for me to hear us on the radio again was really exciting for me. You know, just like great. You know, it was really cool. You know, yeah. I love it. We keep going back to the ska and the reggae sound, which is very important and a very big part of the Hooters uh, sound. Yes. When you used to tour the United States before you stopped touring the United States, did you ever play with a Northwest ska band called the Crazy Eights? Why do I know that band? What part of the country were they from? They're from the Oregon, Washington area. I think University yeah. of Oregon is where yeah, they're from the late I, 80s, I, early I, 90s. I, I must have been listening to the band because I'm familiar with the name of the band, but we never played with them, no. I didn't know if, like, with you guys having a similar vibe or a similar yeah. groove, yeah. you might do a few dates it, it, up in that part of the country together. Yeah, it happens a lot, you know, when bands have a similar kind of thing. Promoters say they, this would be a cool, cool lineup. I got to ask, when did you guys... Or did you realize that the release of the album, this expanded U.S. tour, the expanded European tour for this year, and the release of the Heart of the Beat all were going to be kind of flowing and working together? Was there ever time when the documentary was going to kind of pushing in the way of other things, or did it all just kind of come together? It all came together for us. I mean, with me, like I know my priority is the Hooters. That's my by the band I'm in. It's like I'm a band member in that band that like been moving for so many years so i got other bands that i play with but mm -hmm. it's always like a, we got something like you know the guys even in my other bands know that they always check with me with dates and stuff like that because you know the hooters is usually nothing i'm gonna let conflict with that but the film everybody like the film that the director came over to europe came to germany was in berlin filming some things and that was really cool having somebody see what we do over there i guess thank god for my wife she helps manage my calendar. I never thought I'd be this busy at this time of my life. You know, drumming. I'm still like, I'm taking lessons, man. I'm like, I still want to improve my technique and, and certain things that I do to make it easy. I've never I've been damaged other than what I did with addiction. But I was never dead. My hands, my feet, everything. Never. I've never had like any issues of hurting myself from drumming because I think that um, I've always played with enough technique that I didn't get that. And I still work at it. So I'm just still trying to be the best I can be at doing that, playing. 
You mentioned playing with other bands, and in the documentary, you talk about In the Pocket, which is some incredible musicians. Yeah. You also mentioned in the documentary that back in the 80s, you wanted to play with some of these bands, but because of the competition, yeah. you never got to play together. Was the competition between the bands really that intense? It was. Was it a supportive type of competition? It wasn't supportive competition. There were only so many label signing bands, so everybody was looking for that. And record execs, if you call, remember right, they would barely ever come to Philadelphia. You had to go to New York to get seen, unless you had leverage. And that's what happened with the Hooters. We ended up creating such a big fan base people in new york said listen i gotta go check this band out because there's a, a serious buzz about them and at the time we didn't you know the idea with a record company is that they're going to help you win money <laughs> and we didn't you know so but we were we starting to make money on our own selling omore and sorting the 45s and doing shows so it wasn't like we were in this rush to sign a deal with a record company. So what was the question again? I'm sorry. Was it really like nasty competitive? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bands were... Yeah, I think it wasn't nasty because we all had respect. Like, I mean, I, I never, you know, had words with anybody or anything like that. But, you know, there was, uh, um, you know, I think it was more with management people, though. Like, it wasn't so much a band, but I actually cleared it. But managed, like, there was a couple of managers. And I won't mention their names. What manager who would like... I didn't want to know, say it. They, they would do things like, you know, put your name printed bigger than the other bands and, you know, oh yeah, their headline, you know, it was like a big deal or if there was some kind of poll or something like that, he would get all the fans to write and, you know, like, uh, you know, just like stuffing ballot boxes and yeah. stuff like that, you know. Like most of these bands, like I was a big fan of the A's. I love the A's. Hazard was happening when we were happening, but I was a fan of those guys and there were so many great bands, all those guys from Philly International making records. So when In The Pocket started rolling, you know, they're, they're, you know, like I asked Rick Defonso, I asked Greg Davis from Brewers U, all these different people, if they would get together and record and tell stories about the music we're recording and everybody was on board to do it. And it was so cool for me because I get to hang and vibe with these musicians that I just really, I, I always admired from afar. You know, Marcus, it's like that competition stuff in the 80s and the early 90s. We're older, but wiser, and everybody gets along. And In the Pocket came along at a really good time, not just for you, but for the music, yeah, for the people who were involved to get a chance to work together, in some cases, for the first time, I know. And Truly. the other thing that's come back recently... Is your podcast, you and Andy have brought back the podcast. Tell us what's up with uh, with Sick and Andy Feinberg. And I got to get you guys to come and be guests of mine on the podcast oh. at some point. I'd love okay. you guys to come. Who? So, 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 yes, you guys, you guys, yes. Sure, um, why not? Uh, you know, I stopped doing it because in, in January, last January, I, I had emergency surgery. Oh, emergency surgery. I just went to the hospital and I found out I, I had a gallbladder that was like falling apart. It was terrible. And I had to have it removed and it was bad. So I couldn't really do anything for a while. First thing I did was record that Hooters record when I started feeling better, but I couldn't do the podcast. So we just, we brought it back last October and we're back rolling with it again. And that's me and Andy Weinberg and Freddie B, Freddie Berman, great drummer. Oh, is Freddie uh, doing it with you too? He comes Fred the Red? Fred the Red joins us. And yeah, and matter of fact, we're going to, we, we were done for the year. We start back up on January 16th with the great Rob Stoner. I don't know if you're Rob, but Rob was Bob oh, Dylan's yeah. music director. And he was great friends with Mick Ronson. Uh, the, tell uh, him the, we're really nice guys and he should do our podcast. I, I listen, I will tell him. I will tell him for sure. And he will. I'm He's a, he's such a terrific guy. I played with him with Robert Gordon. So I, I got to know him a little bit. He's a great guy and he's got quite a history. I mean, he played on American Pie. Huh? You know that song, American Pie? Yeah. He played on that. He did vocals on it. And the guy's uh, a legend. So yeah. he's going to open up our podcast in January. And uh, I'm, I'm looking for it. It's a fun thing to do. It gets you out of yourself when you're asking people other questions about their lives. You know, it's therapeutic, I find. Cool. And you guys are really good at it. So keep that Thank up. You. I'm glad that you that. It means that. it means a lot. It means a lot coming for you. Well, other than uh, reminding you to take that shopping list out of your pocket on your way home and yeah. get the stuff down and reminding you to bring home. I just, uh, I just want to thank you for coming by and seeing us here. It's kind of at the end of the year that was, and I started writing it down and I said, well, I better check with the boss and see if I've missed anything. And she's like, no, that's everything. And awesome. I'm thinking, well, 
rocking and swinging into Rick Springfield and the albums out. Uh, the, a surprise release for all of us. We was like, come to this party. I'm not yeah. really sure I've, where it is. It's not place some place you go all the time. But we all found our way there. And and then to see you honored with the heart of the beat this year, that kind of uh-huh. a, of a treatment by the arts community is really great because your story is wonderful. And well, thank you, thank you. Look, it involves thank Levittown. You know, yeah, Levittown. Gotta love Levittown, man. You know, but I, the way I, the whole year flowed for you and, and for you guys. And I know that you enjoyed your time in NOLA, which I love dearly with ooh, uh, with Dallin love uh, it. this year, too. So love it. Love the New Orleans groove. And thanks Second. for fitness in between the lesson you're taking and the lesson you're giving. So I, I appreciate that, too. Well, listen, fellas, it's truly fun to do this with you guys. And it's great to come back and, and chat with you again because it's a lot of fun. You guys do a great job. And uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa to everybody out there. You know, Happy Diwali. Diwali. Whatever you celebrate, Festivus yeah, for the rest of us. Don't forget the flying spaghetti monster either. Got to <laughs> represent him. Ah. Uh, Yes, sir. <laughs> it was sick and our guest here on the Imbalance History. See you, fellas. Hey, take care, Dave. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank buddy. you. Thank you. Stop. You know, I felt like he wedged us in there because I know he had just had a lesson or he was getting ready to give a lesson and he's been doing a lot of that stuff since he got home. It's good to see David so busy on the home front and I'm really glad that he took some time to hang with us. By the way, we have to take him up on his invite and go visit him together on his podcast with him and Andy Weinberg. It's good stuff. Dave is so much fun to speak with, and he's got great stories and just an all-around great human being. Yeah, but it's different when you're the interviewee. You know what I'm saying? So it'll be fun. It'll be kind of a turn of the table, so to speak. So we'll let you guys know uh, when we're going to be on David's podcast. And thanks again to David Basikinen for being on ours. You can reach out and touch us anytime at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. It's an easy email fix. And we actually do uh, have a lot of conversations with folks there. Right, Marcus? Yes, we do. So please keep those emails coming along. Thanks to David and everybody who helped to pull this whole episode together. Till the next time that we crack the mics here at Dark Doc Media, I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.